This message by Bob Coughlin, titled, The Future of Worship, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the 6th General Session at our Worship God 2009 conference. Bob serves as Director of Worship Development for Sovereign Grace Ministries and as a pastor and worship leader at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. We're going to talk this morning about the future of worship, passing the baton. This is kind of the theme of the conference from generation to generation. I thought we should have at least one message that actually addressed the theme of the conference. <laughs> we've, been, we've been looking at the areas of greatest importance, some of the areas of greatest importance, as we pass on the biblical values of worship from one generation to the next. And if you remember so long ago, the first night, we heard about the God of worship. And John Piper helped us see that the God we worship is radically God-centered, not man-centered. He's a God whose righteousness could only be vindicated by sacrificing his own son on the cross. That's the God of worship. And that needs to get passed on from one generation to the next. The next morning, Dr. Piper reminded us that the heart of worship is being completely satisfied for all, with all God is for us in Christ. And remember that worship is meant to be an end in itself, not a means to an end. And then Jeff spoke on the leaders of worship and highlighted the value of the Sunday meeting. He helped us see that it's far more than just a group of random Christians meeting in the same room. We expect to encounter God to respond to God and to strengthen each other for the glory of God. And then Thabiti spoke on the church of worship, reminded us that we must love the church because God composed it. I love that word, God composed it. You know how when you, when you compose a piece of music, you feel so tied to it. God composed the church. And it displays his manifold wisdom. So he loves it and we should love it. And the church is the place where we receive God's equipping, his care and his grace. And he has not given us an alternative to the church when it comes to worshiping him rightly. And last night we reflected on a few things. Power of the gospel. The benefits and limits of creativity. And the importance of spirit dependence. In worship. And today we want to build on the messages we've heard and talk more specifically about the future of worship. Question one to answer is this What do we need to keep in mind as we seek to transfer these and other biblical values of worship to the next generation? What do we need to keep in mind as we're trying to transfer these values we've heard preached on as well as, as other values? To the next generation. In many ways, what we're called to do is similar to taking part in a relay race. Now, I've never run in a relay race personally. However, I came across recently an article that talked about principles for baton relay that I think shed some light on what we're called to do in transferring the biblical values of worship to the next generation. Coach Nigel Hetherington, the Scottish National Sprints and Hurdles coach, says these things. The race is about the baton, not the runners. 
If you run without the baton, no matter how fast you're running, you're going to lose. Your race is in vain. The relay brings out the best in every runner. A properly trained 400-meter relay team will run faster than the four runners combined 100-meter times. I find that fascinating. We do better if we're conscious of those running before us and those running after us. Practice until the handover becomes instinctual, instinctive. Athletes must learn to trust one another. Rather than looking back, the outgoing runner should be trained to respond to a hand command. Both runners are looking ahead, but it's the responsibility of the previous runner to make sure that the baton is passed. Just think about how this relates to what we're talking about. Passing the biblical values of worship from one generation to the next. And then finally, the baton exchange should occur at very close to maximum speed. The incoming athlete should not be overstretched or he will be off balance when making the exchange. The outgoing runner must focus on reaching full speed and only put his hand back when he receives the hand command. So you see how important it is that the two runners be in communication. And how important it is for two generations to be in communication. Many parallels to running a relay race to what we're talking about this morning. As we ask the question, how should we think about the future of worship? And I think those similarities will become even more evident as we consider the passage we're going to look at this morning. Which is Psalm 78. I preached on this uh, at Worship God 2004, but I felt that I did such a poor job, I wanted to do it again. Uh, I think at, at that time, I did what a lot of fledgling preachers do. You, you take a text, and then you say what you want to say. I tried not to do that this time. Uh, I want us to hear the Word of God. We're going to read Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Amaskal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn 
and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It's eternal. It pierces our hearts, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do that this morning as as we meditate on this passage. Teach us, Father, by your spirit. For the sake of your church, for our own good, and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 78 is an historical psalm, much like Psalm 105 and 106. It tells a story, tells a history, but it tells a story for a purpose. And that purpose is that future generations would learn this psalm, they would even memorize this psalm, and take the lessons it teaches to heart. That's why it was written. The first verse invites us to listen carefully, to listen wisely. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Just reminds us that just audibly hearing something doesn't mean we're understanding it. Doesn't mean we're comprehending it. So because this is so important, he starts with, incline your ears to the words of my mouth, what I'm going to say. And then he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now these parables and these dark sayings aren't words that we can't understand or or words that are hidden. In the next verse he tells us, verse 3, there are things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Things that have been passed on from generation to generation to generation and words for which we are now responsible. So he's trying to get our attention. So at this point, we want to ask the question again, what do we need to keep in mind as we seek to transfer biblical values of worship to the next generation? First, we need to keep in mind the command. Tell the coming generations. It's a combination of verse 4 and verse 5. In verse 4 we see, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. And then in verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. God's plan is that we pass on what we know of him and his ways to our children. And not just our children, but the, 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 the friends and those who make up the generation of our children. And not only our children, but our grandchildren. And not only our grandchildren, but our great-grandchildren. Look at the passage, verse 5. Catch what he's saying here. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers... There's one generation. To teach to their children. That's the second generation. That the next generation. Okay, now we're into grandchildren. Might know them. The children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children. Now we're into great grandchildren. He might, be ha- he might have in mind Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. Where Moses says... 
God says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. It's a command. God intends for us to look into the future, far into the future, and tell them. And one man who exemplified through his life this very quality was the one to whom this psalm is attributed. That's Asaph. Now we don't know if Asaph wrote this psalm. Twelve psalms are attributed to Asaph. Whether he actually wrote them or not, we're not sure. Sometimes of Asaph means kind of stemming from from his teachings or those who have been trained by him. We don't know if Asaph wrote them. But we do know that Asaph was a real priest. He lived. And we know that he had an influence that lasted for centuries. Catch this. Asaph was a Levite appointed to minister at the tabernacle during David's time. When David recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, returned it to Jerusalem, Asaph was appointed by the other Levites to raise sounds of joy on the cymbals. 1 Chronicles 15, 16. I I don't know what size the symbols were, but it doesn't sound like a very exciting job. You know, I'm picturing this little ding, ding, ding. You know, but he's faithful. Ding, ding. As loud as he can. Ding, ding. You know, he's just being faithful. The the other Levites appointed him, so he's got to do it. So he's doing it as loud as he can. Later on, Asaph was elevated from cymbal player to chief musician. That's a big jump. I mean, it'd be a big jump in my book. Chief musician? Yeah, David appointed him, commissioned him to be among those who ministered and worshiped regularly in the tent of meeting to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord. 1 Chronicles 16.5 As David was assembling the musicians for worship in the tent of meeting, he chose the sons of Asaph. Now, the sons of Asaph could refer to blood relatives of Asaph, his actual sons, or it could refer to those he was mentoring. And keep that in mind as we talk about the sons of Asaph. These sons were set apart by David to serve the Lord by prophesying with lyres, harps, and cymbals. That's in 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. Asaph and his sons served so faithfully under David that they were appointed by Solomon to serve at the dedication of the temple. Remember that? Big deal. Big deal. It was there that the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. And they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And remember God's glory filled the temple in such a way that they could no longer minister. Those were the sons of Asaph. Asaph faithfully taught, instructed, and ministered with his sons and others who in turn did the same to their sons, who in turn taught their sons and on down the line for many generations. hundred years later, let's fast forward. hundred years later, King Jehoshaphat is praying for protection against some invading armies and he gets a prophetic word from Jehaziel, one of the sons of Asaph. Fast forward another 140 years. During the reign of Hezekiah, the sons of Asaph were among the Levites who cleansed and consecrated the temple so that worship to God could be restored. Second Chronicles 29. 
Let's move forward another 80 years. Okay, now we're 320 years down the line. After the great apostasy in the book of the law was found, King Josiah wanted to celebrate Passover again. And the singers turned out to be the descendants of Asaph. Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon. Judah was. And after 70 years of captivity, nearly 400 years after the dedication of the temple, Ezra records that numbered among the exiles returning to Jerusalem were 148 singers, the sons of Asaph. And when the foundation of the temple was laid, once again, it was the sons of Asaph who led the worship. Asaph and his sons were apparently pretty intentional and purposeful about passing on the practice and understanding of musical worship for future generations. They could sing and believe that God was good and that his steadfast love endures forever because they took seriously the command to tell the coming generations. How seriously, how seriously do we take the command To tell the coming generations what we know of God and of worshiping God. Let me put it this way. How many of our thoughts about music and worship revolve around what we like, what we prefer, what interests us, and what we find appealing? And how often is that attitude passed on to our children? Or those who know us. Now, let me make it clear. You don't have to be a parent to benefit from what I'm saying. Because if if you're 15, it's only a few years before that next generation kicks in. And you'll be looking back and saying, oh, I'm, I'm not the youngest generation anymore. Oh, that's not very far away at all. And when we think about musical worship in that way, just about what I like, what I prefer, what I think is best, what's appealing to me, it has consequences. I think, I think that it may be one of the reasons churches develop different meetings for different musical preferences. While in the short run, that may bring more people to a church, people may actually get saved through that. I mean, not as a result of that, but because they like the music and they hear the gospel and they're, they're born again. But in the long run, it keeps us stuck in the mindset that musical styles have more power to divide us than the gospel has to unite us. And that's not good. It leads us to think that musical styles have more power to divide us than the gospel has to unite us. Here's a question. How do we pass on the biblical values of worship to coming generations when we can't even sing in the same room with them? I think that's an important question. How do we pass on the biblical values of worship to coming generations when we can't even sing in the same room with them? We must see beyond our generation, both 
backwards and forwards, both past and future, if we're to clearly understand, to, if we're to clearly understand what we must do now. Otherwise, we're guilty of what's called a cultural narcissism. We're just so caught up in what's happening around us that always views the present generation as the most important one even though there are multiple generations surrounding you. That's what a cultural narcissist is. As Winston Churchill insightfully wrote, the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. It's true. God wants us to have an eye not only on our children and their friends, but our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, because we have a message to pass on to them. What is that message? Here's the second point. We have a command. We also have the content. And the content is the deeds, might, and wonders of the Lord. Psalm 78, the whole psalm, all 72 verses of it, is the often disheartening story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God and God's patient perseverance with his people. The psalm was written in the hopes that future generations might learn and remember the deeds of God. And as, as we read it again and again, Israel forgets God. Israel disobeys God. Israel tests God. Israel fails to believe God. It's, it's so discouraging. But again and again, God disciplines them, shows them His wonders, and forgives them. God's mercy triumphs over their rebellion and sin. And that is the story that we are to pass on. And what a story that is. We call it the gospel. We call it the good news. It's good news. It's the clearest, most powerful display of the deeds, might, and wonders of the Lord. It's the holy history of Jesus leaving his throne in glory to be born as a baby to a young girl in an obscure town who goes on to live a perfectly obedient life who then suffers at the hands of those he had created, dies as a substitute on the cross, receiving the punishment we deserve, rising from the dead, ascending to his Father's right hand where he now intercedes for us. And because of him, we have been grafted into the family of God, forgiven and adopted through Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's what we're passing on to coming generations. And isn't that good news? That is great news. And we can be tempted, we can be tempted to think that the next generation already knows about it. Especially if we're talking about second generation Christians, third generation Christians. We can assume they already know about the deeds, wonders, and might of the Lord in the gospel. We could not be farther from the truth. We have to be intentional consistent and passionate in communicating the wonder of the gospel from one generation to the next. From a church history standpoint, a church or movement rarely maintains the gospel from one generation to the next. 
in his wonderful book, For the Love of God, Volume 1, which is uh, uh, through the Bible commentary, using a Bible reading plan. D.A. Carson wrote, Even after times of spectacular revival, reformation, or covenantal renewal, the people of God are never more than a generation or two from infidelity, unbelief, massive idolatry, disobedience, and wrath. That's sobering. We must never assume that the next generation fully grasps how great God really is. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is what? Unsearchable. If it's unsearchable, that means we're not going to run out of ways to express and explore it in our lifetime. It's unsearchable. It really is. It's unsearchable. And we can be tempted to want to pass on our deeds and the wonders we have done to the next generation. And that's really different from passing on the Lord's deeds and the wonders He has done. Years ago, I was in a then contemporary Christian group Glad was the name. A very contemporary name, I might add. And I was in the group from 1976, 1972 to 84, really, and I left the group, but continued to write for the next 30 years for him. And we tried to keep a realistic perspective on ourselves. We were never, you know, way at, you know, at the top of the charts. We just, we just tried to write nice music and with good words. And um, I remember as my kids grew older, well, as, as our kids were younger, we used to play glad around the house, and they really enjoyed it. And then one day, one of them said, do we have to... play glad around the house? I tried to hide my shock and offense. I'm not sure I did a good job. Uh, then a few years later, I, I remember feeling uh, as though I wanted one of my sons, I forget which one, to, to kind of just show a little respect for what I had done, the years I had given to, to this group. And, and he, was, he wasn't having any of it. I mean, you know, no, I don't want to listen to it. I, you know, I just don't, it's not that appealing to me. And I wanted to say, son... There are people across this country who who would want my autograph. I know you find that hard to believe. But I I have people coming up and saying they used to go to sleep at night to my music, which I'm not sure that's a compliment or not, but they were little kids and their parents used to play it for them. You have no idea of the wonders that I have done. (laughs) Now, I've repented since then, just so you know. My son hasn't, though. (laughs) Now, you don't have to be in a Christian rock band 
to want your kids or their generation to be impressed with what you do. It can be simply wanting your part to be noticed, talked about, alluded to. Wanting to be commended, praised, honored, esteemed for your playing, your hard work, your servanthood, anything. Just say something good about me. That's something we can all identify with. And here's what we need to remember. We can't exalt the deeds of the Lord and our own deeds at the same time. We can't. It's one or the other. We can't exalt the deeds of the Lord and our own deeds at the same time. As I get older, and I find I keep getting older, it's becoming more evident to me that any fruit from my life is the grace of God. It's a result of His deeds, His might, His wonders. My body is falling apart. I'm 54. It's falling apart. It's, it's so embarrassing. This year I had to get hearing aids. I'm wearing them now so I can hear myself. No, I could hear myself anyway. The reason I got them is because so many times in my home I would have conversations like this. So, uh, Charles, how's your day today? Oh, wow, wow, wow. What? Oh, wow, wow, wow. You remember, like, the Charlie Brown stuff? The teacher, minus whatever her name was. Wow, 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 wow. That's what it, people were sounding like. And so I'd say, I'm sorry, what did you say? I'm sorry, we say, I said that I needed, don't yell at me. And so, you know, after doing that for a few years, and my family saying, would you get your ears checked? I did. And some point along the way, probably when I was like cranking it out with Glad, um, I did some damage to my ears, and so now I'm paying the price. And, but I, I enjoy having them because I really can enter into conversations, although at times it's a little complex up here when I'm wearing my glasses. It's just weird. And I don't know what part's going next, you know, whether like it's my knee or my foot or, you know. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. As long as I have breath, and as long as there is life in my veins, my hope is that I will be like the psalmist in Psalm 71 who says this. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness Yours alone, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? That's what I want to be praying. 
till the day I die, as long as I have breath, I want to be saying, God is so great. I want to tell the next generation and the generation after that, I want to tell as many generations as I can of the might and the power and the glory and the deeds of the Lord. Because that's our task. And that's what we're saying. Our task is to proclaim the deeds, the might, and the wonders of God to future generations. So why do we do that? What's the purpose? That's the third point. The purpose. So that they might hope in God and might express obedience to God. So they might obey God. This is the goal of what we're seeking to do as we pass the baton to the next generation. That they hope in God and obey God. We read it in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. We want those we're seeking to influence not just become to become parrots of us. We want them to really hope in God. We want there to be a genuine faith there, a genuine love for Jesus Christ. We're not looking for mere external conformity or good citizens, good Christian citizens. We want them to hope in God. And we don't want them to hope in us. We want them to hope in God. We we don't want future generations to look back at us and say, we wanted to do everything exactly as they did. You know why? Because we've made so many mistakes. We don't want future generations looking back and saying, yeah, we're just doing everything that you did. No, don't do that. We've made tons of mistakes. It doesn't mean future generations don't have a good bit. They can learn from previous generations. But we're not passing on some infallible legacy. We don't want the future generations to put their hope in our musical preferences. Or our way of doing things. Or our structures. Or our band arrangements. Or our communications methods. We want them to hope in God. We want them to hope in Jesus Christ. It's important that we're not the object of someone's hope. Because we will fail them. We will disappoint them. We will perhaps confuse them. We will let them down. We want their hope to be in God. Nor do we want their hope, future generations' hope, to be in technology, which is more and more an increasing temptation. Listen, there is no new instrument No video software, no lighting or sound system, no piece of gear, no new website or social networking technology that is ever going to alleviate our need to hope in God. Never! I hope those weren't the people who like have no idea what those things are clapping. I hope those were some of the people who actually Twitter and use Facebook and all that stuff. We don't want future generations to put their hope in good books. Although books are a gift from God. And if you want your faith to be strengthened, I would encourage you to read a lot of good books. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in our own efforts in reading them. We want their hope to be in God. 
There are 10,000 idols that future generations can put their hope in besides God. And every one of them will fail. Every one of them will prove empty and vain because only God is worthy of our hope. That's the first purpose. Second purpose, obedience to God. Disobedience was the downfall of Israel. It can potentially be our downfall as well. Obedience to God is not an optional part of the Christian life. I remember being in a meeting one time where the pastor was offering two invitations. One, if you wanted to receive Jesus as Savior, and the other, if you wanted to receive Him as Lord. I just thought, that is the weirdest thing. Like, is it, it's not a trinity, it's like a quad thing now? Jesus is the Savior and Lord. And you can't, you can't divide Him up like that. He is both Savior and and Lord. First Peter 1 2 tells us that we have been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. And as we seek to train up future musicians and future worship leaders, we must impress upon them that we have been bought with a price and we have been called to glorify God in our bodies through obedience to His commands. God's commands aren't suggestions. We don't vote on them. They aren't optional. They're commands. So when considering members for your music team or some other position of responsibility, character must be one of the primary considerations. I've had sad, sad conversations with worship leaders Telling about members of their team who are doing drugs, involved in fornication, getting drunk. And they're wondering, should I talk to them about it? (laughs) Yes, you should talk to them about it. (laughs) Goodness. I mean, do it gently, but... (laughs) (laughs) Don't let me go. We've been called... I mean, worship team. Worship team. Worship. Worship team. Who are we worshiping? Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. Okay. How do we worship Jesus? Well, we just sing songs. No, it's a little broader than that, actually. We, we, We glorify Him with our lives. We live in a way that magnifies His greatness and His glory. And the only thing we're going to magnify through our disobedience is His loving discipline. That's what will get magnified. And if we want to do that, that's fine. And this would especially be true in the area of humility. Uh, I've had a number of conversations here where that topic has come up. 1 Peter and James both tell us that God gives grace to the humble. It is one of the most precious promises in Scripture. You want grace? Grace is great. Grace changes you. Grace enables you to know the acceptance of your Heavenly Father. Grace gives you strength you didn't have. Grace enables you to overcome sin. Grace enables you to actually change, become more like Jesus. You want grace? It's only one way. God only gives it to one kind of person. Humble. Humble people. You want grace? You've you got to pursue humility. 
And we save ourselves a massive number of problems by waiting to bring someone onto a team until we can see that they're pursuing humility. Now, no one is completely humble. But when I say pursuing humility, I'm talking about you know, being open to being corrected, not feeling like their opinion is the only opinion, asking for input sometimes, encouraging others, that's a sign of humility. You know, just doing some of those things, asking for forgiveness, confessing sin, those things, those are all the pursuit of humility. And if, if I see someone doing that, I say, good to go. And it's always easier to wait to add someone to your team than to ask them to step down later. Always easier. It's so easy to wait. Ah, not quite, not quite, not quite. Then it is once they're on the team, you realize, uh uh-oh, I made a mistake. It's not working. And then to have to ask them to step down, that's always harder. So the purpose is that they might put their hope in God and that they might obey God. And the the passage we're looking at this morning ends with a warning. Verse 8. And it's actually part of what the psalmist is is saying, the purpose of of passing on this uh, word to the coming generations. Part of the purpose is Verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose heart was not faithful to God. Final verse of the introductory section of the psalm describes a generation that was stubborn and rebellious, not steadfast, not faithful to God. Psalmist is warning his hearers that another goal for future generations is that they not be like the fathers of the previous generation. How do you want your generation to be described? Just say, take your age and you know, put 10 years on either side of it. How do you want your generation to be described? If you were included in the fathers of the previous generation... How would you want your music ministry, your worship team, your church described? What words come to mind? Relevant? Modern? Hip? Traditional? Missional? Creative? Impressive? Alternative? Emerging? Here are two words that I'd want to hear. Steadfast, faithful. They aren't the coolest words that I can think of. But God likes those words. And if he likes them, I'm okay with them. In fact, I'm more than okay with them. I want, I want to be called that. Steadfast and faithful. We want to be steadfast and faithful to pursue those younger than us. The next generation, whoever that might be for you. You might be a 19-year-old guitarist and thinking, I don't have anything to offer anybody. Let me show you an example of how this works. 
My son Jordan is, will be 27 this month. He was teaching drum lessons about eight years ago when you were 19, sometime around then. Had a number of drum students, learned basically kind at home. Here's what I taught Jordan. Kick, snare, kick, snare, kick, snare. Don't play anything else. Kick, snare, kick, snare. And do that for like a couple months. Kick, snare. And then you can move on to other things. That was the extent of how I helped my son. Uh, he learned a few things after that. So he, he had these drum students um, for a number of years, I guess. And one of them was Jared Hoffman, who played for the first and second session tonight. Uh, of the conference, sorry. First and second session of the conference, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Jared's a fine drummer. Well, Jared has a number of drum students. Jared's, I think he's 19, 19 or 20. Jared has a number of drum students, and two that he's particularly excited about, who are in 8th and ninth grade. I think, wow. We're, we're like serving the church, but it's because these guys are taking the initiative to be faithful and steadfast in pursuing the next generation. Now, you probably have stories like that, know stories like that. But unless we're intentional, it doesn't happen. We also want to be steadfast and faithful to pursue those older than us. You know, there's a tendency, the way, the way our culture is set up, there's a tendency for the younger generations to feel like we really don't need the old generations. We're the Mac generation. That was the PC generation. And I, I use a Mac just so I could feel younger. No, I... I won't go there. I don't want to get something started here. Although, I imagine we have a lot of Mac users here. Um, not as many as I thought. Okay. We, there's a tendency to think that we don't need the older generation. Oh, yes, you do. And I, and I know that part of the reason you're here is because you believe that. You could have gone to a lot of other conferences. I know there are a lot of worship conferences. And, and I respect those of you who are 25 and younger for coming to this conference. Because we don't have like the IntelliBeams and you know, all the stuff like smoke machines. And you know, it's just us. And uh, it's a pretty unimpressive group. But that's what it is in your church. You know, so we want to kind of relate and say, okay, let's, we're doing this together. Let's help each other as much as we can. But we have, as an older generation, been through a lot. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've seen God do amazing things. And we want to pass on some of those things to you. And actually, you know what? We want to do it together. And we want to do it with us both running full speed. That's how we want to do it. We don't want to just kind of fade off into the distance. I love the, the number of teams here that have been made up of multiple generations. You know, I'm looking forward to the day when we can have three generations on stage. I would love that. Because it speaks of what God is doing from generation to generation. We want to be steadful and steadfast and faithful with our children. That's, for parents, that's our, that's our primary sphere. That's the primary area we're looking at. Before we look at the other areas. 
And actually, I've had this burden through the whole conference. I want to pray for for parents who you have older children who are not walking with the Lord. So I want to take a moment to pray for you. You're welcome. Father, we thank you that you are the God who knows all and sees all. And I believe you want to assure these parents that you know exactly what's going on in their family. And that you're at work and that you're doing things that they can't see. Father, I believe you want to assure them of your forgiveness for the things that they struggle with. Ways they didn't parent the way they could have or should have. The guilt and condemnation they they battle. Wondering if they are largely responsible for where their children are today. Father, I pray that they would experience your forgiveness bought through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would not weigh them down anymore. I ask that you would fill them with hope in your word, hope in the working of your spirit, hope in the power of the gospel to change lives and give them a heart of compassion for their sons or daughters, that they might not speak to them harshly or impatiently, Father, for those who don't even have a speaking relationship, I pray that you would establish communication. I pray that you would soften the hearts of their children, that they would see how grateful they should be for their parents, and mostly that you would soften their hearts to the gospel, that they would be convicted of their sins, they would turn from them, embrace the mercy you've shown them at the cross, And that they would walk once again with their parents. That they would even one day be standing next to them, praising you, worshiping you. Bring the prodigals home. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We want to be steadfast and faithful to our children. We want to do what we can to display the glories of Jesus Christ. It is our privilege and it is our responsibility. And the reality is we don't know how it's all going to work out. We have no idea of the kind of fruit God might choose to bear through us in our families or in our music team or in our churches. We don't know. But that's not supposed to be our primary concern, is it? God calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be faithful. To seek to make His deeds, might, and wonders known to everyone around us and everyone who comes after us. Will we be a success? I have no idea. We're called to be faithful. This is what Oz Guinness says in his outstanding book, Prophetic Untimeliness. If we define all that we are before our great caller and live our lives before one audience, the audience of one, then we cannot define or decide our own achievements and our own success. It is not for us to say what we have accomplished. 
It is not for us to say what we have accomplished. It is not for us to pronounce ourselves successful. Oh, these are, these are so helpful. These words are so helpful. It is not for us to spell out what our legacy has been. Indeed, it is not even for us to know. Only the caller can say, only the last day will tell. Only the final well done will show what we have really done. Now, as we consider our track record of faithfulness, I'm guessing that none of us are looking very good. And that we could be tempted to discouragement. I mean, who is really faithful? Who is really fully steadfast? Well, that's why I'm so grateful for the last three verses of Psalm 78. Let's turn to them. Because there is one who has been faithful. There is one who is steadfast. Verse 70, Psalm 78. He chose David as servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing news, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them. And guided them with his skillful hand. At the very end of the psalm, the psalmist recounts God's faithfulness to his people in providing David to shepherd and guide the Israelites with his faithful hand. Of course, David didn't turn out to be so faithful or steadfast either. But we know something that Asaph didn't know. We know that David was a foreshadow. David was a type of a greater shepherd and king who was to come. King Jesus. And he is the one of whom it can be truly said, he has an upright heart. He will guide us with his skillful hand. And how do we know that? Because we know the end of the story. We know it. We see it in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, where the hosts of heaven are calling out. (laughs) Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood... You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. He's done it. That's how we know. That as we seek to be faithful to the coming generations. To tell them of the works, the deeds, the might, the wonders of the Lord, so that they might set their hope in God and obey Him and not forget His works. We know that it will bear fruit because Jesus made sure it would bear fruit. The passing of the baton to the next generation is ultimately up to God, not us, who in His faithfulness has provided the new King David, Jesus. And he will faithfully shepherd and guide us 
with his skillful hand until every one of those he has redeemed has been brought safely home and we see him face to face. And Lord, we can't wait for that day. We are grateful to be a part right now of what you're doing from generation to generation to generation. We are grateful that we can play any part at all. We are grateful that you would use us in any way, in any way. And we thank you for how you have helped us and encouraged us and equipped us at this conference. But at the end, we just want to say, it's all for your glory. It's all up to you. And we depend on you. Our hope is in you. Not in us. Not in what we're going to do when we get home. It's in what you're going to do. And most of all, it's in what you've already done. What you have already accomplished, already completed, for the glory of your name, the good of your people. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin, which was given at our Worship God 2009 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.